1: from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCremmen from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 26th. Today, the subservience of Mike Pence, the new treatment that Trump is calling a breakthrough, and what the virus can teach us about climate change.
0: On Wednesday night, Vice President Mike Pence is going to be traveling to Fort McHenry in Baltimore to give his formal acceptance speech to the Republican National Convention, the virtual convention, of course. And he's going to be formally accepting the nomination, meaning he's going to be on a national ticket again with President Trump. I'm Philip Rucker, White House bureau chief at The Washington Post. For months now, there have been rumors uh, in Washington and throughout Trump world that Pence could be replaced on the ticket by Nikki Haley, the former United Nations ambassador, or even by South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. But this is Pence's moment. It's Pence's spot on the ticket. And his speech in Baltimore is going to affirm that he is the man. He's the number two. And he and Trump are going to be on the ballot together in November.
1: And I think it's notable that when you look at the people around the president and the people who have been there and who have left in the last four years, you could probably describe it as a revolving door. But it does seem like Vice President Pence is this one constant who's managed to be there through it all.
0: He has been the constant through it all. And and the one thing that he's been unwavering in is his loyalty to President Trump. He, of course, calls it loyalty. Uh, Others call it sycophancy or, uh, you know, his subservience to the president. But because he's been so uh, consistently at the president's side, parroting what the president once said, defending the president through any number of crises, he has earned that trust and he's earned that position uh, in a White House where people tend to rise and fall and come and go with frequency.
1: And what are the strategies that the vice president employs in order to do that? Like, what have you heard about the ways in which he is able to demonstrate that loyalty?
0: You know, he demonstrates it in all sorts of ways publicly that we see. He will oftentimes credit President Trump with difficult decisions that may not have necessarily been the president's himself. He often will say, you know, I did X, Y and Z at the president's direction. And it's become something of a running joke among Pence's critics.
2: And last week uh, at the president's direction, this week at the president's direction, we'll be
0: uh, At the president's direction, active duty. Meeting. I hope the American people know. Um, at this president's direction. But, uh, you know, Pence really means it and is earnest when he says it. And, you know, he feels like he is serving the president. And this is the kind of role that the president wants him to play as the loyal number two but it also plays out privately. For example, you know, Pence is reluctant to make any sort of public statement or even private statement in closed door meetings at the White House until he knows exactly where the president is going to land on any given issue. He doesn't want to get into a situation where he takes a position that's crosswise with that of the president or he gets out ahead of the president on any sort of news event.
1: So so does that mean that that Pence is essentially like the ultimate yes man, that he doesn't really push back on the president or try to correct or improve decisions?
0: You know, as far as we can tell publicly, Mike Pence is absolutely the ultimate yes man. I know I speak on behalf of the entire cabinet and of millions of Americans when I say
3: congratulations and thank you. Thank you you for seeing uh, through
0: the course of this year— uh, an agenda that, that truly is restoring this country. You, you def- However, Pence's advisors insist that the vice president will sometimes challenge the president in private or offer counsel in private one-on-one and, and may not always agree with what the president is doing but he never lets on uh, publicly that there's any disagreement or any space between the two of them. Pence's priority as vice president has been to be on the same page as President Trump, no matter the issue, no matter the day, no matter the crisis.
1: Probably one of the most high profile roles for for Pence um, has been his time as the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force.
3: I'm going to be putting our Vice President Mike Pence in charge. We're doing really well, and Mike is going to be in charge, and Mike will report back to me. But he's got a certain talent for this. and uh, I'm
1: going to- How has he navigated that, and what does it say about Pence that he is in that job?
0: You know, as soon as the coronavirus became a pandemic and the White House realized the magnitude of this health emergency Vice President Pence was named to chair the task force. And, you know, in a way, it's sort of a, a no-win situation for Pence because of the magnitude of the crisis, because it looked like it would be virtually impossible to do this job perfectly. Uh, but Pence took it on. The White
2: House Corona Task Force are all reflective of the urgency that the president has brought
0: to a whole-of-government Approach, And he led those coronavirus meetings for the first several months of the administration. He helped convene uh, not only the public health officials and the scientists and the federal government, but also the governors and and various outside stakeholders and state leaders.
2: As a uh, former governor, I know full well the vital role of partnerships of state and local governments and health authorities in responding to the potential threat. Of dangerous infectious diseases,
0: to do sort of that nitty gritty staff level work that the president, uh, frankly, had no interest in doing himself.
1: And, and what do you say that he's been successful in that job?
0: You know, it's not necessarily for us to say whether he's been a success or a failure, but I'll point out a couple of things. The U.S. government and the Trump administration in particular uh, does not have control over this virus, does not have control over this crisis. And so if Pence's objective as chair of the coronavirus task force was to get control over the virus, to slow the spread, to prevent it from from killing more lives, to prevent it from disrupting our economy and and day-to-day life around the country, then he has clearly failed because you know the U.S. does not have that sort of control Hmm. but when talking to Pence's defenders his staff you know they think he's done an admirable job they think this crisis was far beyond uh, anything anybody uh, could have reasonably been able to contain quickly and and that Pence has done the best he could.
1: You know, I think it's interesting to think about Vice President Pence in the context of of Kamala Harris and and her nomination as a potential democratic replacement for him. It's almost the opposite with Vice President Pence that that what has made him so successful is his his refusal to step a, a toe out from the shadow of President Trump.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's right. I think Pence has been so careful not to shine brightly as a star, so careful not to raise his profile. For example, he doesn't like participating in stories like the one uh, that Ashley and Josh and I did because he doesn't want to get fame. He doesn't want to get attention that could, could get him crosswise with President Trump, who, of course, has famously lashed out at aides who he believes steal too much of the spotlight. You know, in that regard, Pence is different than Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris has sort of an electric presentation as a politician. And, and Vice President Biden seems very comfortable with having Harris in the spotlight and with showcasing her sort of charisma and talent and abilities.
1: So then what do you think is Pence's endgame here? Like, do you think that he aspires to be the president?
0: Absolutely. You know, Pence presents this very sort of humble, modest image and makes you think that all he cares about is uh, serving Donald J. Trump from dawn to dusk. And and beneath that veneer, however, there's this... uh, ambition that he has. And not just Mike Mike Pence, but his wife, Karen Pence, the second lady, they both share this political ambition to rise higher in national politics. Our understanding is that he would very much like to run for president someday, perhaps in 2024. He's doing things uh, in this job as vice president to try to set him up for success down the road politically, to create uh, opportunities for himself to perhaps succeed Donald Trump uh, as the president.
1: You know, I actually am genuinely surprised to hear you say that Mike Pence actually wants to be president because he projects that like lack of ambition so thoroughly. And it kind of strikes me as ironic that in many ways, the way to survive the Trump White House and to to build a sense of power within the White House is to basically hide any semblance of outward ambition or attention seeking.
0: Well, I think that's the trick for survival in the Trump White House. Um, of course, you know, most vice presidents through the years have aspired to the presidency. Al Gore certainly did and, and ran for president. Joe Biden did and ran for president. I guess Dick Cheney is an exception. You know, Mike Pence is no different. But what's different about Pence is that Trump doesn't have a tolerance for Pence sort of outwardly positioning and campaigning for the presidency. So that's what Pence uh, appears to be publicly, that that's largely how he does his job. And yet this ambition still burns in Mike Pence, it burns in Karen Pence, it burns in the aides around him. And they're very much thinking about a 2024 race, even if the vice president himself is not yet acting on it.
1: Philip Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post.
3: Today, I'm pleased to make a truly historic announcement in our battle against the China virus that will save countless lives.
2: On Sunday, President Trump announced that the FDA had authorized the use of a treatment for coronavirus patients called convalescent plasma.
3: This is a uh, powerful therapy, that transfuses very, very strong antibodies from the blood of recovered patients to help treat patients battling a current infection.
2: This is a very old treatment in the history of medicine. It goes back more than a century. It's
3: at an incredible rate of success. Today's action will dramatically expand access to this treatment.
2: And the idea is, is very sort of simple and intuitively appealing. What they do is they take the blood plasma, it's like the yellowish portion of blood left over after you remove red blood cells, and it has antibodies in it. And they take that and from people who have recovered from COVID, and then they give it to people who are currently battling the illness. And the idea is that the antibodies in that plasma can give the immune system a boost and help people fight off the disease. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I'm a science reporter here at The Post.
1: So the FDA thinks that this works, right? Like, how effective do they think that this treatment is?
2: That's where it's complicated. Uh, So the kind of authorization the FDA gave is a pretty low bar of evidence. Basically, it's for stuff that is safe and appears that it may be effective. That's a way lower standard than regular approval. Like when you think of a drug getting like the the stamp of approval from an FDA like kind of decision. Hmm. So they do think that there's suggestive evidence that it could work. And where it's all gotten messy is... How firmly people think you can draw that conclusion and whether it was overstated during the press event over the weekend.
1: Well, before we get into how the results were talked about, let's just talk about the results themselves. Like what kinds of trials or tests have been have been done so far with this type of treatment and what does the data from those tests say?
2: There haven't really been any of the kind of gold standard evidence in support of this that scientists look for. So when you hear about a drug getting approved, it's almost always because one or more large trials compared the performance of that drug against a placebo, like a dummy shot, a dummy pill, whatever, you know, if it's a vaccine or a drug. So it's like the best tool we have of kind of understanding whether a drug really works. In the case of convalescent plasma, what happened instead is that in the early days of the pandemic, when doctors had nothing, a grassroots kind of movement of physicians came together to try and make this available to patients because there is a good rationale for why it would work. There's a history of using it against influenza or measles other diseases. So there was kind of a hope that it would work, but not the kind of clear gold standard evidence that you would want. So they were successful in making it widely available. So more than 70,000 people have received plasma. Really? That's a lot. Yes. What they do know from that is that it's pretty safe. They didn't have a lot of adverse events that they attributed To getting the treatment. And then they just kind of try to look for patterns in the data. So if you don't have a trial that you laid out in advance, you know, half of them get this, half of them get that, then we see how the two groups did. One way of kind of, it's really just a way of generating hypotheses usually, is to go back and look at trends, be looking at if people who ended up getting higher doses of antibodies in the plasma did better than those with lower doses of antibodies and they found a mortality difference there. It was like a 35% difference in mortality, but that is a kind of an exploratory number still. Like most people wouldn't say that you can like extrapolate from that to say X number of lives are saved from, from this. Hmm.
1: Because President Trump has basically been talking about this treatment like it could be some kind of breakthrough. And and clearly there are members of the administration that are very excited about it. But it sounds like what scientists are gleaning from these numbers so far is much more moderated, that it might not be a breakthrough, but it also isn't completely pointless, that it's somewhere in between.
2: Yes, I think people have a variety of different views, obviously, even people who are very... Interested in using this? See it as a tool, not a. It's obviously not a cure or anything like that, and it's promising, but it's just a, an important tool potentially, and that still also does remain to be proven with a better trial. Even those who who want to use it. Another thing that is a little bit misleading about calling it a game changer or a breakthrough is that uh, it was already pretty widely available in the U.S. So when I talk to a person who works. With blood banks, they were saying this will make it a little easier potentially at some hospitals. Like it could diminish some of the paperwork burden. But it didn't seem to me from talking to people that they they imagine this really totally shifting access to this. So it may not appear like such a change, you know. It was more symbolic for it in many ways to get this authorization. And people were pleased about that. It was very divisive in the scientific community. I think what a lot of people got upset about was the way it was described, you know, as a bit over the top and a bit over the evidence of, of what we have.
1: But I think that there have also been concerns about the way that this decision from the FDA was rolled out, because they basically made this announcement about granting emergency authorization for this plasma treatment. They they did that the day after President Trump was complaining on Twitter about the FDA standing in the way of potential treatments and and cures. And so it seems like, at least from the timing of it, that the FDA might not have been doing this because— the scientific evidence was so compelling, but more because the president was complaining about them and that they were doing this for the benefit of the president.
2: Yes, we are in definitely a a kind of a complicated situation. I mean, the thing about plasma that is kind of, uh, that makes this even more complicated is that There had been rumors for weeks or even months that the FDA was like about to authorize plasma. It's been something that many people thought would happen in part because the expanded access program had just gotten so big. It was never really intended to function the way it had at the scale it was. So there was an assumption that they were going to do something to change that. But, you know, I also have heard from many scientists that like emergency authorization is a lower standard of evidence than an approval. And there are people who think we've really met that standard and that this whole like theater, all the hysteria over the politics of it it has just been toxic in a different way. It's, it's, it's not really about plasma. It's about all kinds of confusing messaging from the White House.
1: Well, and then I think what you're saying about the insertion of politics into this process really gets to the heart of this because, as you said, science is complicated. And it's not actually that surprising that there is a potential treatment that is being considered that some people, that some scientists even are, are saying are, could be more effective. Some scientists are more reticent. But that is part of the scientific process, is trying to suss that out and try to get more evidence and figure out exactly what the deal is or how something like this could be more effective. But the fact that you then have politics brought into it, the fact that you have President Trump talking about it as a breakthrough, and then there's a backlash to that. And then there's a concern that the FDA isn't listening to the scientists, but instead is listening to the president, that it takes a process that is supposed to be kind of complicated and supposed to be kind of nuanced, and that it throws it into the extremes, that either it is like what the president is saying or it isn't. And the fact that it's more complicated than that is a hard message to convey in this kind of political environment.
2: Nuance has been impossible during the pandemic on many levels, I would say. A big worry of people is that in the FDA's authorization, it says what is needed is more of the older kind of like rigorous clinical trials that people who are critical of the decision have been calling for. But one of the problems is that the president and his advisors have gone to a press conference saying that this is such a remarkably effective treatment and really celebrated it. And it's really hard for me to understand why anyone who is sick or has a relative in the hospital would wanna volunteer for a clinical trial where they have a chance of not getting the plasma if they've heard these messages that it's just this wonderful, very effective, life-saving measure. We saw that with hydroxychloroquine where the president talked about how well it worked. Trials were ongoing, but many institutions did not actually launch trials that randomize people because patients didn't want to take a placebo. And so the fact that there's been all of this, this attention to this treatment that saying that it works is really going to endanger our ability to ever know if it works. And that was already true, but it's far, far more true now that we have had the president and his highest level of health officials kind of say how effective it is. It's true they're also calling for more trials, but why would that be persuasive to to someone with a a desperately ill family member who's trying to decide, you know, what what treatment course they should get?
1: Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. Now, one more thing.
4: I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a reporter at The Washington Post. And in normal times in non-pandemic times, I cover climate change and the human response to climate change. And something I found in my time reporting on this subject is that it is really hard to communicate about climate. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I was having this kind of eerie sense of deja vu, watching the way people responded to the science of the coronavirus.
3: A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. The bottom line is, after looking carefully at the data, These two researchers have concluded that California should end its shelter-in-place order.
0: All the talk about coronavirus
2: being so much more deadly doesn't reflect reality. Without a vaccine,
1: the flu would be far more deadly.
3: At worst, worst worst-case scenario, it could be the flu. I feel like the more I learn about this, the less there is to worry about.
1: It's actually the safest time to fly. Everyone I know that's flying right now, terminals are pretty much dead. And a lot of climate
4: scientists I spoke to drew really strong parallels between the challenges that they have faced communicating climate change and the challenges that public health experts are now having trying to get people to take action around the coronavirus. Both are these natural disasters that scientists predicted and that evidence shows could be prevented if we take swift and early and decisive action. They both have these unequal impacts where they fall hardest on the most vulnerable communities, the most vulnerable countries, the people with the least resources to fight these disasters. And Just like climate change is very political and that acceptance of climate science is often dependent on someone's political ideology, the acceptance of COVID science has also become very politicized. Simple things like wearing masks or agreeing with social distancing policies are often determined not by the evidence, but by what people believe politically. And that's not an accident. One scientist that I spoke to said that there's a similar playbook that has been developed over decades from people who want to downplay or dismiss the danger of climate science, politicians questioning the findings of government scientists, conspiracy theorists kind of spreading misinformation and muddying people's understanding. And that very same playbook is now being used to downplay and dismiss the danger of the coronavirus. This has been a really hard year for everyone because of the COVID-19 crisis and also climate change. There's fires in California, there's intense heat waves all across the Northern Hemisphere. But both epidemiologists and public health experts and climate scientists have told me that they actually think there's an opportunity right now to learn from one another. Climate scientists are watching what's happening in terms of COVID researchers and public health experts trying to get people to take action and they're taking note of what works and what doesn't work. I spoke with one ecologist who said that basically the world is in a gigantic natural science communication experiment right now. Every country has a different policy, a different approach to trying to communicate to their citizens what they ought to be doing. And we'll be able to look back at this and say, okay, what was most effective? Where was action most decisive? You know, where were people most easily convinced and and what was the strategy that was most convincing?
1: Sarah Kaplan writes about climate and science for The Post. it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. As we've been watching wildfires grow in California and the looming threat from Hurricane Laura, we've been wondering, what is it like to evacuate your home and your community during a pandemic? And how do you do that safely? If you're in the process of preparing to evacuate, we want to hear from you. Record a short voice memo telling us about how you're navigating this process and send it to postreports at washpost.com. And please stay safe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.